Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Facts of it, where we were in New York in, I think it was September 79, we were always already like the hottest band in the world. Everybody was after us. We were surrounded by photographers, lots of girl photographers. And somewhere in there, you know, I started to get interested in their equipment. I started looking at it all and thinking about it. Suddenly it occurred to me, oh, I should get a really good camera. I'm on the road, I've got all this time, you know. I mean, the only real commitment I have is getting the gig and playing, you know, a couple of hours. Welcome to Behind the Setlist, the podcast where artists tell the stories about the songs they perform live. I'm Jay Gilbert from Label Logic. And I'm Glenn Peoples from Billboard. In this episode, we talk to Andy Summers, the great guitarist with a surprisingly large body of work as a solo artist, in addition to the well-known recordings he has done with the police and decades of touring history that goes along with such a luminous career. Yeah, not only is he an accomplished, amazing guitarist, he's also a seasoned photographer. His recent book, A Series of Glances, covers several decades of his photos from travels all around the world and interaction with people from a lot of different cultures. And, you know, photography really dominated, I would say, uh, at least half <laughs> of the conversation we had with Andy currently. He's combining his two passions in a tour called A Cracked Lens and A Missing String. And he's performing at theaters all around the country, doing solo guitar performance that complements his photography being projected onto the screen behind him. You can go to YouTube and watch videos of this stuff. It looks great. Set list includes renditions of some beloved police songs, including Roxanne and Message in a Bottle, and then songs from his solo career and covers of uh, such artists as Brazilian guitarist Luis Bonfa. Yeah, you know, we asked him about his style of play because he doesn't sound like any other guitar player. And I think a lot of it is, you know, he grew up playing jazz guitar, later studied classical guitar at uh, Cal State Northridge. And I mentioned to him that sometimes it's what you don't play, not just what you do play. Yeah, and he learned that from, if memory serves, Miles Davis. And other yes. and other jazz musicians, you know, is I think if people just know Andy from the police, they'll be pleasantly surprised uh, listening to the interview, and then do a little research on your own and learn about his solo work, learn about his biography, has numerous books out. Very interesting guy, accomplished yeah. in many different areas, and so it was a great conversation. It really was. So now, without further ado, here's Andy Summers behind the set list. Let it roll. I'd love to sort of kick it off. Um, and there's so many things I want to talk to you about, whether it's photography and music and the songs that you choose. But I want to back up a little bit because uh, listening to your music over the years, you don't sound like any other guitar player, not in popular music, not in rock. And, and I think there's a really good reason for that. And it's sort of your your roots of playing jazz guitar and classical guitar. And talk about at, when you were younger and growing up, w were you 
What were you listening to? Was it Django Reinhardt? Was it West Montgomery? Where where did you sort of cut your teeth? Well, of course, I knew all these people. Yeah, you know, because, of course, as I, you know, emerged from 11 years old and, you know, six years of piano playing, you know, they got onto the guitar and became, well, sort of unconsciously knew that this was my road ahead with life. Absolutely. You know, I never thought about anything else except guitar playing in those, you know, formative years. And, you know, so I was absorbing and listening to as much guitar playing I could. And, you know, one kid would know this thing, one kid would know that thing. You know, I grew up in Britain and, of course, sort of dominant guitar thing was there with uh, Cliff Richard and the Shadows. Hank Marvin was taking in some a little bit of American influence. And, you know, we all wanted to be American and play like American guitar players at that time. And so... You know, you're standing out as a kid, you're getting through a C chord, then you finally got to D7, then you may go to the mighty E chord. You start sort of <laughs> working your way through the first chords, which are all pretty folky kind of thing, sort of basic mm-hmm. guitar. And then, you know, if you have the ear for it or the talent, the innate talent, you start, your ear starts getting to more sophisticated sounds. And that's when you move on. In my case, you know, you know, I started out with all those guys like Big Bill Brunsey, you know, American players you know folk players Lonnie Don again and start off playing the stuff that I could play then I started to get better and better my hands started to you know have the ability and then you start hearing you know altered chords and more jazzy chords and then you hear somebody like Wes Montgomery and you go oh my god I remember trying to learn uh West Coast the whole solo of West Coast Blues by Wes Montgomery at 15 years old and I pretty much got it but see this was hugely influential because it was all about time, yeah. phrasing, altered yeah. notes over chords. You know, this is real musician stuff. But, you know, there I was at 15 years old trying to get all that, and most of it I did get. I didn't necessarily understand it. Because there's a lot of harmonic theory, sophistication that you you learn and get over time. So, you know, I was, I was truly on the path to, to being, you know, what I would sort of ultimately become. But somewhere in all that, you know, there is this... Uh, idea this inkling that with all this material you now have you must find your own way with it you know the the watchword was you must find your own voice you must find your voice and a lot of that is by deciding that you don't want to sound like this you don't want to sound like that you know you know until you you sort of boil it down to what pleases you and then you sort of commit to that and try and make it into a style or a, a way a mode of playing you know, which is certainly was very much on my mind. Yeah. I've noticed that it's not just what you play, it's what you don't play. Um, it, it's... Yeah. Well, that's one of the big yeah. lessons. Yeah. You know, one of the you know things that you pick up as a kid, or at least I did when I was reading all those American downbeat jazz magazines, was, you know, the use of space. And of course, the great master of it was Miles Davis. He'd play all the wrong notes with a lot of space, <laughs> and it was sublime. You know, it's brilliant. So the opposite of Dizzy Gillespie, who was also incredible. But Miles was really the master of playing a few weird notes that didn't fit. (laughs) (laughs) And made a great poetic statement. Yeah. One song you've put in your set lists on this tour is Round Midnight by Thelonious Monk. And you did an album of, of his music. And at what point in your career did you hit on Thelonious Monk? Well, actually, I was very lucky when I was 16. I I went to London to see, um, you know, I think it was like maybe a show called Jazz at the Philharmonic. 
maybe. It was various American jazz artists. I think Dizzy Gillespie was on it, but notably on the show was uh, was Monk. I think he was playing solo piano, and of course, you know, I'd heard about him as I, as I was starting to get the knowledge of music. And of course, it knocked me out. You know, it was just wonderful. It was so quirky and different than everybody else, so individual and. You know, he seemed to have the ability to play all these dissonances and so-called wrong notes to make a very individual, personal statement. That went a long way with me, and I became a you know lifelong Monk fan. Of course, all that. And the truth is, you know, his music is not difficult. It's his his tunes are very bright and cheerful. People go, oh, Monk, it's so difficult. It's not. It's it's almost not avant-garde. His tunes are really like little pop tunes, and then of course the way he plays around them is so brilliant. Absolute unique uh, musical personality. Yeah. So you studied classical guitar, and I find that fascinating because I don't know many classical guitarists. I mean, Andre Segovia jumps to mind, but yes. what sort of things would you play? And was it just nylon string, acoustic? What was that? Yeah. Well, I would, you know, we go through different phases in life. I found myself in Los Angeles and sort of. I'd been already been in bands for a long time, and I was so used to it, you know. And uh, suddenly, I got this idea of, oh, classical guitar is the ultimate way to play the guitar. I, you know, I was still pretty young, and I thought, oh, I've got to do that. And uh, and the only guitar I had was a little nylon string. This was, this was the uh, forty days in the desert period, and you know, I took up classical guitar, and I went to college for four years, studied classical guitar with couple of people and learned vast repertoire on classical guitar and um you know i went through this for about five years or so and then just one day I, well actually it was because i got the telecaster that i used in the police there was such a transformative instrument and, and i suddenly found myself back on the telecaster and i hooked up with a guy called tim rose who was a pretty noted singer songwriter at that time had a song called morning chew and you know Back I came, you know, and I, that's when I returned to the UK, back home, and, you know, got back into it. But um, I never lost my love for, you know, the, the classical instrument and the repertoire and all that. Um, but it's a very hard thing to uh, make a career of. And, you know, I had all the chops and improvising and, and playability on the electric guitar. And, you know, I, I moved forward with that in a very different situation. <laughs> Didn't work out, of course, but there you go. And another uh, thing you drop into your set is some Brazilian music. And talk about the Brazilian influence and uh, what artists got you into Brazilian music. Well, I first, my introduction to Brazilian music and a subsequent pointer in things I've done was when I was 15, 16, 17, I used to go to a place called the Continental Cinema in my hometown. And what they showed exclusively was European art house movies. And so I was completely fascinated by all these movies by, you know, like Truffaut, Bergman, Fellini, Agnes Varda, so on and so forth. Um, it was like an education for me because it was all very alien outside of England and other languages and adult situations. And But one of the films that I saw... It was a film called Black Orpheus, and this was the sort of Orpheus myth. 
portrayed as if in Rio de Janeiro. And it had wonderful music. It had this wonderful song called Mania de Carnaval by Luis Bonfa. And it was a great tune, which I've subsequently learned. And there's some other great other great music in the film, also uh, songs by Joe Beam. So this was a huge um, and very um, kind of exotic influence on me. That's where the love of Brazilian music. And I had that little period in Los Angeles, and I studied with a great, uh, you know, Los Angeles uh, guitar player called Howard Heitmeyer, who was also very into it. And he taught me a lot about Brazilian music and Brazilian tunes and how to play them on the guitar. And so, you know, it was it was a thing for me, you know. And of course, I actually loved Brazilian music. And, you know, of course, eventually I did go to Rio with the police, of course, but we played to massive places. And then I started sometime after the demise of the police, I got into a relationship with a great um, Italian, um, Brazilian you know, producer, promoter down there. And, you know, I've subsequently been there every year since 95. I've never missed a year. Sometimes I've been three times a year. So I, it's like my other home is actually Brazil. And so all these things was, you know, sort of felt like they were meant to be. In my life, it's amazing. I saw that at 16. And then I've had all these years of playing in Brazil and you know, even playing that song, like Maniata Carnival, the thousands of people on the beach in Rio and, so I feel very blessed about that because I've, I've, you know, half my career has been in, but not so much known in Europe or the West, but half of it's been in, um, in South America. Yeah. And I've noticed that you did some dates there with this uh, tribute uh, band you put together, Call the Police, which sounds like a lot of fun. Tell yeah. us a little bit about how you put that together. Well, it is. It is great fun, and it's a more recent development. And unfortunately, we got slightly stymied mm-hmm. by the. Uh, three-year absence because of COVID. Everything stopped in Brazil. Everything stopped yeah. everywhere. But, I, would, you know, I played in all sorts of incarnations in Brazil, guitar duos. I played with another Brazilian band. I played with an orchestra. I played with a great Brazilian bossa nova master. I did a lot of... I've had a lot of exposure in Brazil. I'm pretty well known down there, as well as Argentina, Chile, and all the rest of it. Um, I played there this year. We, we did a month there. Um somewhere along the line later you know three or four years back sort of pre-pandemic um the guy that i worked with uh, got involved with a very good uh singer bass player guy called R- rodrigo santos who's in a famous band called the red baron <laughs> yes red baron sorry thank you madam vermeja and uh, we started playing together just very casually, not playing police at all. We did some of my songs, some of his songs. We did a couple of gigs around Rio and, you know, started sort of getting into a thing, you know, and we had another drummer who was very good. Um, and then the producer guy, Luis Paolo, suggested that maybe we bring in this other drummer, very famous drummer from the uh, Joao Baroni from the Paralamas, who are. Uh, endless hits in South America. They're very famous. And so now we had kind of a a sort of a, a, a famous band. Yeah, I'm the guy from the police. But, you know, we started off trying to do sort of a mixed show, but basically it came down to doing, you know, 12 hits in the police. 
which is great fun for me and no shame whatsoever. This band is a kick-ass band and uh, it's very loose. It's just a lot of fun. And, um, you know, we sell out everywhere we go. So, awesome. yeah, wasn't expecting it, but there it is. And um, I'm going to go and play in September with them. We, yeah, we went to, we were supposed to play in Mexico a few months back. Anyway, there was a total visa problem. I ended up in Mexico alone. And <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> the other two guys couldn't make it. Anyway, that's all in sort of that. So we're doing what you would call postponed uh, yeah. gigs. You know, we got four in Mexico in September, at the end of September. So I'm looking yeah. forward to meeting up with everybody. And then, yeah, there are a couple of sets of times next year down there. I think we do the northeast of Brazil. And then in the summer, we'll probably do a bigger tour. Yeah. Cool. It's fun. You know, it's great fun. You know, everything's a sellout. Everybody's crazy for it it's 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 all right your current tour titled uh, a crack lens and a missing string has you playing guitar in a large screen showing your photography and you're performing a lot of medium-sized venues around the country talk about how you came up with this idea for this particular type of mixed media performance yeah, well, what's surprising to me is that I didn't do this years ago. Well, I did do it years ago. I was doing it actually pre-pandemic. But even then, it was like late in the day. Man, you've been doing this for so long. And for some reason, I don't know why particularly, I sort of separated out doing, you know, like gallery shows, that mm-hmm. sort of thing, and turning up. And, yeah, it was very nice. Again, it was sort of like a gig, but, you know, I got totally into, you know, how to be a photographer, how to make prints, how to you know, get the print shipped to the place. What, how do you want to, you know, there's a whole other side to it, but no problem. And I've had a lot of success with it, including some big museum shows towards the pre-pandemic era. And now coming back to it, uh, I don't know, somewhere in the, along the line, I I must've been, well, when I, around the time I started doing it, I guess it sort of came to me that um, maybe I did a video or something and I started using my own still photographs and sort of, you know, within what you can do with computers, of course, they're, they're still photographs, but they're not really still. They're always morphing and moving or the camera's drifting over the photograph. It's sort of modern technique. And it occurred to me that maybe I, I could put this together. So I've gone into a long <laughs> talk about it. You know, I've basically developed it and, and got this idea going. You know, I started off, small i started in la one night i did a show and it went really well and you know then i did another one then i did about 11 shows the last one i did a prize all this was at the metropolitan museum of art in new york and it was sold out and it was it was a great show but you know things change because as you do it more and more you get more and more ideas and i think we've actually developed it into quite a sophisticated place from that early start and the way you learn, you, the way you do it is by actually doing it in front of an audience. I mean, you, you know, of course, I practice in my studio and we, you know, project onto a big white wall and I play. And then, you know, with a, so that's your normal practice, sequencing, playing, getting used to it. Then you do it once in front of an audience and realize you've got everything wrong. <laughs> and so you revise it and start putting it, you know, making a nice cool moves on it. So... So it's always a work in progress. Yeah. When I was younger, I loved 
photography. I, I, I still do. And I bought your book Throb mm. back in 1983. Yeah. And it just seemed like you were always, you always had a camera with you. How were you introduced to photography? Well, you know, through boredom, I think, because, of course, like any other normal person, I had a camera. You know, you, know, you take snapshots of your life as you go along. But it wasn't like, oh, this is an art form and I must study it. You know, that sort of, I think the actual facts of it were we were in New York in, I think it was September 79. We were always already like the hottest band in the world. Everybody was after us. We were surrounded by photographers, lots of girl photographers. And somewhere in there, you know, I started to get interested in their equipment. I started looking at it all and thinking about it. Something occurred to me, oh, I should get a really good camera. I'm on the road. I've got all this time, you know. I mean, the only real commitment I have is getting the gig and playing, you know, a couple of hours, however many nights a week. Then there's all this downtime, you know, and particularly in the U.S. That's when I, someone went with me and I, I bought a really... I think I bought a Nikon mm -hmm. FE at B&H in New York. And, and that's where it started. But, you know, immediately it became a complete obsession. You know, I was on it, you know, fast. And I started learning. I started studying photography books, talking to people. You know, I seemed to have a natural aptitude, mm -hmm. a knack for it. Um, yeah, and I think, when I, as I've talked about it now, I, I think those seeds were sown uh, when I was a teenager watching all those great European black and white films. And then I had a sort of a lust for it. And so at this later stage, it all came out. And so, you know, I picked it up and off I went. Do you think photography comes from into the same artistic nature that drives your music career or does it exercise different creative muscles? Well, I think you can make the argument that there's a lot of the same terms applied to music or photography. I mean, ultimately, you're looking for shape, line, melody, abstraction, in your face, whatever. You know, um, it's very musical, I think. And I think uh, being a musician has very much helped me in terms of being a photographer. Because I think musically, you know, and I think somehow in the brain, in the gray matter, that works in photography too. You know, it's like not completely alien to me. You know, I mean, if you're making music, you're looking for some form of poetry, let's say, composition, ballads, you know, aesthetic judgments. Why does this work? Is this too weird? Is that too abstract? Should it be balanced with something else? So all these terms that come out of uh, visual art can be applied to music. And I think the reverse is true. You can apply musical terms to visual arts or whatever you know it all it all comes down to music in the end music is the 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 most abstract of the arts your new well your latest book a series of glances it's mostly black and white from what i've seen but there's a beautiful color image i saw called uh, masks in mexico uh, what do you remember about that image well i was in mexico and that is a very recent image actually that was Taken within the last year, I went down to Oaxaca for a week. I just sort of, I got a friend to come with me. I had never been there, but I heard it was kind of a great place. And there's uh, some incredible Aztec or Mayan, I'm not sure which one, ruins down there that's worth the trip. So we went down there for a week and, you know, we were hanging out in this more far out um, 
Mexican town, I suppose, very authentic, less touristy. It was, it was kind of great to be there. And one Saturday afternoon, it was a bit weird. I wish I didn't play it quite right. We went out looking at something or other. And as we came back into the town later in the afternoon at about 4 or 4.30, this incredible procession was, was going by with all sorts of costumes. So, God, I was upset because I didn't know that it was going to be going on. But anyway, I dived in amongst all the crowd. You know, So if you want to take photographs of that thing with a parade on, you have to get in the parade and go with them. Not stand at the side and watch it go by. Get in the parade, <laughs> which is what I did. So <laughs> I was mixed up with all this stuff. They had masks and everything. And, that, and that's really where that, that, that the picture of that kid came from. And it was so exotic that... Uh, it's the kind of thing that I would like. Yeah, it looked like you were right in the thick of it. I was, definitely, very much. Great adventure. I mean, one thing, you know, doing photography out there in the world, it, it is an adventure if you're following your eye because you're sort of semi-aware of where you're going, but not all that aware because you're kind of following your eye through a lens and you, you go down dark alleys and streets and you're a foreign city and there are other people on you don't know, is there danger there or not? So that, I've never really gotten hurt. I've been threatened a few times. But uh, I use a Leica camera, and it's pretty subversive. You know, it's not like some giant, you know, telescopic thing. Is it so, the same Leica that you have it. your own signature uh, Andy Summers model of? Is yeah. that what you're using now? Well, no, I mean, they made, uh, yeah, it, I mean, in essence, it is. It's... Um, I, they made, um, I'm not quite sure why they did that. They made an, what's called an M2. It's a yeah. beautiful camera with all my design on it. But the, the camera I'm using, and it's not the very latest one, is the M10, which I thought, God, yeah, when they, get, they came out with the M10, both in color, black and white, they, I said, they should sell the company now. They've reached the apex. This is it. No, they've gone on to the M11. <laughs> I'm not particularly interested in going there. I'm very happy with the M10. It's, it's you know, I know what I'm doing. You know, it's great, great camera. Looking at your photos, it's clear that you spend a lot of time traveling both cities and sometimes kind of far off the beaten path. And talk about some of the places like in Africa, when you do get off the beaten path, where have your travels taken you for photography? Well, I've been all over the world. I've been in Tibet, for instance. I went there for a full week on my own. Uh, you know, I went to China and I intend to go again. I've been eight times traveling in China because I had a certain friendship with somebody that allowed me to do that all over it, you know, far west, Tibet, all across the center. Uh, no, I never got tired of it because it's an incredible country and it, it's not at all the way it's portrayed in the media, you know, which is all about Xi Jinping and the government. That's a different China than the one I know. I will always start from Shanghai, which is almost a very Western place. Yeah, it is Chinese, but it's a very exotic city. And so China is a big one for me, but I've also traveled all over South America. Um, I've been in, um, God, yeah, well, there's almost nowhere I haven't been. I did another trip all across Asia through Laos and um Burma and Cambodia, which was great. The Cambodian thing was really amazing. Angkor Wat. Um, being in Sahara, you know. I've done a lot. I mean, it's almost endless. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping if the 
you know, COVID and all that crap allows it to uh, continue on. Uh, I think I'm playing Australia in March, and then I've got two photo shows in Japan, so that's going to be interesting. I think we can time it out. I might pass through Indonesia on the way up to Japan if I can make it. I've been there before, but um, yeah, we'll see. You know, it's all very interesting. I mean, yeah, working with a camera, you're not just a tourist. You know, you I think you absorb the environments and the cultures in a different way, maybe in a deeper way, because I'm really looking and trying to take it in, you know. And I'm not just trying to take pictures of somebody in a funny costume or a funny app. I'm trying to get, you know, some kind of semi-abstracted thing that uh, kind of sums it up in a different way, which it means for better photography. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And it's not, you're not just taking a picture of the Eiffel Tower. Uh, the photos that I really enjoy that you've shot, they, they're more like a National Geographic vibe as you're focusing on these people in these other countries that uh, you might not meet if you just go to the touristy areas. That's right. Um, it, it does bring you into different situations because you see something, you go, God, that looks great. I wonder if I could, you know, and you develop little <laughs> techniques to, you know, say if you wanted to film people and there's no reason, you know, I don't avoid people. Um, but I don't only want to shoot people, you know, but um, you find techniques to um, approach them and do them. I mean, the funny one is like going to China and traveling far out there. One of the odd thing that I learned was carry a pack of cigarettes in your pocket and, uh, you know, you approach some old guy with an incredible face or something that you would like to take for the give him a cigarette and everything changes. Immediately, they're very super friendly. They will take that cigarette and they guard it. Put it away. Interesting. Yeah, I'm, that's not, I'm not saying that in a condescending way at all, but it, it, it was an approach that I found very useful to be friendly. And you, you don't just go and take, you know, raise your camera and take a shot. You try to be nice with the people, the culture. And so you, you, you want to blend in a bit and ease your way into these situations. Did the pandemic kind of derail your recording schedule and? Uh, do you do you have more solo work to, to get done because of that? Yeah, you know, I don't even really know what happened because we record, you know, I have a studio in L.A. and, you know, I recorded it. And um, I don't really know why we, we stopped. I mean, I think, I don't know if I, I was on the road because I, I wasn't on the road. But somehow we just didn't get back into it, you know. And, I'm, I'm well, you know, I made a lot of solo records and, uh, I have a whole storehouse of compositions I'd like to record and do more with, but um, I don't know, somehow that sort of three ghostly years passed us by. <laughs> we were active. I'm going to have to start looking it up because people ask me this a lot, what did you do? And I go, I don't know what I did, and I don't know how we could got through a time that was so long protracted. Because that's not me. I'm very driven, you know, driven creatively. Right? You know, it did... Well, I put out the book, Fretted and Moaning. I did that. I finished that off. That was probably one of the things I did. So that took time. And that's selling out every night. We sold 60 books last night in a, when I appeared here. So, you know, that was satisfying to get that done and accomplished and put together and all that. Because all these things take a certain amount of energy. And I, I'm pretty involved 
or I don't just hand things over. I sort of tend to see it through. Uh, I put that out. I also, no, I did do stuff. Let's see now. I also put out the latest photography book, which I put together, which actually, come to think of it, took six months. So that probably stopped us being in the studio recording. Uh, that book is a series of glances published by Tainois in Germany. That's available now on Amazon and mm -hmm. everywhere. So that was a big project too. So right there, then I played at Lycage. Actually, now that you start mentioning it, I, I actually was pretty busy. <laughs> I think of it because all these things are set up. You know, you don't just uh, you know you have to prepare for them. Yeah, the book, those two books took a lot of time to get ready, and then maybe that was wasn't the first time I'd done the the solo show when I performed at Like It in Germany, but it was um, it had been a while, you know, since the last one. Maybe a year a year had passed, and uh, there we were, and it was a sort of heavily pressured situation. Plus, there was an exhibition, and that took putting together. So, yeah, no, I was not idle. I'm never idle. And now I'm sort of starting to remember all the things I did do. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like you can't so sit you still. You, you've, no, not really. As, we're, as we sort of wind down here, you, you've had such a successful music career, photography, multimedia. What haven't you done that you have an itch for that you'd like to do? Well, I probably should swim the British Channel, <laughs> but I've, I don't know if I've got Emmy anymore. <laughs> I might go for a dip in the uh, Four Seasons Minneapolis swimming pool this afternoon before I do the gig. That's about it now. I have to preserve the energy for the show. You know, I have a tendency, you know, if I get somewhere, well, now I'm in Minneapolis, to run all over the to see whatever they've got. But, you know, that's kind of stupid on the day of the show. Dude, slow down, keep the energy. You're doing the show tonight. That's where I want to put it. So I'm, I'm not going to go mad today. Right. Yeah. Let's see how it goes. Yeah. Yeah, you know what? I would just love to hear what's on your merch table. You said you're selling books. Um, do you do you stay after to do you stay after to sign autographs and, and meet people? And what goes on at the merch table? Yeah, the usual. Last night, I I, I did a, a book signing at this place, which is pretty famous here, called Electric Fetus. Mm -hmm. It's really a record store. They've been around forever, and you know, I don't live in Minnesota, so I, I wouldn't know about it. But we had a fantastic turnout, and it was very lovely and warm and they sold 60 books and we we're all very pleased but unfortunately i think they sold out everything that was left in the u.s and the uh, english publisher is going like mad now trying to produce a, a softback version because you know yeah typically you know i do the show at the, the night and at the end of the night i ask the merchandise person how did it go you know sold everything every night we sell everything so mad if you want to sell merchandise, do a gig because that's where you sell it. It's quite incredible. It's 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 the hot moment, you know. And you know, the books sold. Every every book was sold. Uh, Fantastic. It's a bit worrying now that we can get them get enough back on you know on the tour with us. Nice. Yeah. Andy, thank you so much for joining us today. We yeah, really appreciate it. Always yeah. a pleasure. All right, great. Have a good one. All right, cheers. <laughs>